As we prepare to listen to the word preached by Jim, will you join me in a prayer of illumination? Lord, you have heard our prayers. You have heard our confession. You have heard our singing to your glory. You have now in this time opened our hearts and our minds to your word that we might be challenged and encouraged, and that you may then hear our thankfulness and praise. Amen. This morning's scripture is from Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 48. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Give to everyone who begs from you. And do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The word of the Lord. This winter, we're studying this famous collection of Jesus' teaching in the Gospel of Matthew that we call the Sermon on the Mount. And remember uh, that it's not a random detail that Jesus goes up on a mountain to teach his disciples. In the Bible, mountains are always significant as meeting places between God and human beings. What's unusual here is that Jesus brings his disciples with him onto the mountain. He's not like Moses who goes up the mountain and then brings uh, the law back down to the people. Jesus brings his disciples into the divine presence and then shows them what it looks like to live in that presence. Or to put it another way, the message in the Sermon on the Mount is not try to live like this and then you will be close to God. The message is you can live like this if you are close to God. In other words, if you believe that the person and work of Jesus brings you into the very presence of the creator of the universe, despite all your flaws and and your weaknesses, if this is true, there should be something different about you. This comes out really strongly in our text today, in verses 46 and and 47. Uh, Jesus says, 
For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? The word that's translated here, more, you know, what more are you doing? It could be translated extraordinary or, or remarkable. What is extraordinary about you? What's remarkable about you? It's the, it's the Greek word parason. And, and throughout this chapter, uh, this is what, what Mike and I have been trying to identify as we've been going through, what we've been circling around. Uh, what is this more of the Christian life? Uh, what is the extraordinary character that Jesus describes here? Well, today we're talking about this in relation to these two final examples that Jesus gives in Matthew 5. In each case, he responds to a traditional teaching from the Old Testament law. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. And there are three questions uh, that I have for us today about this. First, what is this something more that we were just talking about? What What do we learn from these examples? Second, what, what keeps us from it? Why don't we experience it more deeply? What keeps us from it? And third, what or, or who can bring us into it? Well, what's the way into this life that Jesus describes? So first, what, what is the something more that Jesus is talking about? Let's look at, verse, at first at verses 38 and 39. Here, Jesus is responding uh, to what's an often misunderstood legal code, a a sentencing guideline uh, from Exodus chapter 21. Uh, Most scholars agree that though an eye for an eye and a tooth uh, for a tooth sounds very vicious to us, in the ancient Near Eastern context, this was meant to be a law of justice. It, It restricted the possible punishments that could be enacted to something comparable to the offense. Especially in a tribal culture, this was needed uh, to prevent escalating blood feuds uh, based on revenge and in the cycles of violence that that could result. What's more, the, the biblical author probably did not intend for this to be taken literally because elsewhere in the Old Testament, we see that the penalties for physical harm are replaced by financial fines. The person who was offended had the right to demand uh, the payment of damages uh, from the offender, to to demand a just penalty, is what this verse is saying. And in response, Jesus calls his disciples, even though they might have laid claim to that, that call for justice, to give up their rights in a significant way when they were offended. Now, Jesus doesn't deny that there's an injustice. He says, do not resist an evildoer, right? He calls out evil for what it is. But in each of the illustrations that follows, he asks his followers to give up their rights for his sake. First, their their right to retaliate by not hitting back if struck, instead turn the other cheek. Second, their right to their possessions if If someone wants your coat, give your cloak, the the more expensive garment as well. Third, their their right to their time. If uh, someone, probably a Roman soldier, makes you go one mile, uh, go with them too. And fourth, their their right to their money. 
Give generously, he says. Asking not how little can I give, but, but how much when requested. In each of these cases, Jesus changes our focus. Instead of asking, because I have been hurt, what can I demand in return? The teaching of Jesus requires a willingness to set aside our rights in order to give good for evil and and blessing for cursing. So this is the first something more. Uh, In the second example, in verses 44 and 45, Jesus quotes from what was probably a popular interpretation of the Old Testament command to love your neighbor as as yourself, uh, found in Leviticus 19. Jesus says, You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Hate your enemy is not in the command from Leviticus, but adding it defines what it means to love your neighbor. It limits the scope of the command. Love only your neighbor, not your enemy. This is something we do naturally, almost without thinking about it. We love people who are who are like us, who are of the same age or have the same politics, the same religion, the same hobbies. We limit the scope of our affection. And this version of the command was simply recognizing that fact to make it more realistic to to obey it. In response, Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He, He widens the scope of love. Love everyone including even your enemies. And he also raises the standard for love by adding the command to pray for those who persecute you. He tells us to seek what is best for all, even for those who seek our worst. So what do we learn from both of these examples about the extraordinary character, the the something more of the Christian life? In both of these examples, Jesus requires a love that cannot be required. Love and mercy are commanded, but real love and mercy can't be a response to a command. The kind of love that we see here, that Jesus illustrates in these different ways, has to come from an extraordinary spirit of of generosity and of humility and of grace. If you're just doing it because you have to, you're not really doing it. Toni Morrison, uh, the winner of the, the 1993 Nobel Prize for Literature, wrote, Love is or it ain't. Thin love ain't no love at all. The context of this quotation in her novel, Beloved, makes it even more powerful. Beloved is a a tragic novel about a runaway slave, a woman in in the 19th century named Seth. It's based on the true story of a slave named Margaret Garner who tried to kill her children rather than allow them to be returned to the plantation from which she had escaped. And in Beloved, the slave woman, Seth, meets another runaway named Paul D., who considers the the unconditional love that Seth shows as too risky. Paul D. says, For a used-to-be slave woman to love anything that much was dangerous. 
especially if it was her children that she had settled on to love. It was much safer, he says, to love just a little bit. So when they broke its back or shoved it in a croaker sack, well, maybe you'd have a little love left over for the next one. Paul D. says that Seth needs to accept this weak love. And he tells her that her love is too thick. It's in response to this that Seth insists, love is or it ain't. Thin love ain't no love at all. This is what Jesus is calling his disciples to, to a thick love, even for our enemies. Thin love holds on to grudges. It's fearful, it's controlling, it's only concerned to protect itself. Thick love is risky. It sacrifices everything for the other. It gives itself away without concern for whether the recipient is worthy or not. What keeps us from this thick love? If it can't be achieved through duty and and discipline, where do we find it? It requires a, a complete transformation of our hearts in the way of love. I believe that part of what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount is exposing our hearts so that we can see what our need for transformation really is and and why we so often live in ways that are full of thin love and that are selfish and, and vengeful. The way that I've been thinking about this is based on my experience a few years ago of having a, a series of CT scans, CAT scans, uh, done before surgery. Uh, each time I, I had a scan, and I had to have a, a number of them, I had to drink this horrible stuff. Those, those of you who have who've had this understand what I mean. It's, it's barium sulfate that you have to drink down a, a bunch of it. And, and doctors call it this contrast uh, because it works as a dye to highlight uh, blood vessels and and organs in the scan. I think Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount are kind of like this contrast solution. If you take these words in, do not resist an evildoer. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. If you listen to these words, if you sit with them, they will begin to reveal something of what is inside of you. Your natural attitudes and inclinations will begin to stand out. Jesus told one of his most famous parables to show a religious teacher who had achieved a kind of legalistic righteousness that love required far more than he had imagined. The parable was like an x-ray of the man's heart. In Luke 10, this teacher comes to Jesus and asks him, Who is my neighbor? In other words, whom must I love? In response, Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan about a man who was traveling and was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, they beat him, and then they went away leaving him half dead. And a priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man in the ditch, he passed by on the other side. And then a Levite, who was like a, a Jewish deacon, came and and he also passed by on the other side. 
And then finally, a, a hated Samaritan came past. And Jesus says that when he saw the man in the ditch, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey. He brought him to an inn and took care of him. The Good Samaritan shows us what enemy-loving love looks like. He has a heart of mercy. He sees and moves towards the hurting. He's sacrificially generous, despite any difference of identity that might exist between the Samaritan and the man who was robbed. He views him only as a human being, worthy of, of unconditional love. And at the end of the parable, Jesus turns to the religious teacher who asked him the question, who is my neighbor? And Jesus asks him, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The man answers, the the one who had mercy on him. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? He turns a question who is my neighbor, about the limits of love into a question about what it means to be a person of love. And Jesus is doing the same thing in our text today. Are we people of love? Of course, his teaching raises all sorts of questions about what it looks like to live this out. Some of you are probably frustrated that I'm not getting to these questions. Should Christians be pacifists? Can there ever be a just war? What does it look like for politicians to put this into practice? When Jesus says, give to everyone who begs from you, does that mean that we must give to absolutely everyone who comes to us? These are all important questions. I'm I'm happy to talk about them. A long time ago, St. Augustine pointed out that Giving to those who ask is not the same as giving everything that is requested. It also doesn't mean that there's not an appropriate place for the police or for courts of justice. John Stott comments on these passages, If my house is burgled one night and I catch the thief, it may well be my duty to sit him down and give him something to eat and drink, while at the same time telephoning the police. We can talk about all these questions, about how we navigate these hard issues in our imperfect world. But the real challenge for us, I think, here is not these questions, as important as they are. The real challenge is inside of us, in hearts that are exposed by the words of Jesus, that don't really want to love others in the superabundant way that Jesus describes. What do we do about this? This brings us to our our last point today. What's the way into the life of love that Jesus describes? Jesus tells us in in verses 44 and and 45, I say to you, love your enemies and, and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. And he refers to the Father again in verse 48. Be perfect, therefore, 
as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus is not saying, live like this, and then you will have God as your Father. He's saying, if God is your Father, then you will live like this. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a British pastor from the 1940s and 50s, used to ask people a question to see if they really understood the Christian message. He would ask, are you ready to say that you are a Christian? And if the person answered, I'm trying, or I don't feel that I'm really good enough, he would respond, you don't get it. The gospel is not about what you must do for God. It's not good advice, but good news. God saves the lost. God rescues the hopeless. Blessed are the poor in spirit, Jesus says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The way into the love of Jesus demands two things. First, you must see that the attitude of love that Jesus commands challenges us in the, in the deepest possible way. He requires the love that can't be required. He goes to the core of our self-centeredness and, and our pride and shows us what we are really like. And second, you must see that the Father loves you despite all of this that he makes his sun rise on the good and on the evil, that he sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. And when you, when you see that he loves you, even in your lovelessness, it begins to change your heart. He takes your heart of stone and he, he turns it into a heart of flesh. As you experience his grace and his love, you begin to show grace and love to others. Even the most undeserving enemy becomes an opportunity to display the love that the Father has shown you. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, love for our enemies takes us along the way of the cross and into fellowship with the crucified. You see, as long as you don't really believe that God is your heavenly Father, you always resist going the way of the cross. If you look for identity and, and for self-worth in anything apart from the Father's love, then it means that, that you must live at the mercy of other people, of what they think of you and of your circumstances. When things go well, you're ecstatic. When things go badly, you're crushed. You'll always be super sensitive to what other people think of you. You'll, you'll be defensive. You'll be easily offended. You'll be touchy. But if you believe that the almighty creator of the universe is your father in heaven and that he loves you so much that he sent his own son to rescue you, by dying on the cross. If you believe this, then you have a source of, of confidence and of power that's not dependent on another person or what's happening in your life today or this week or, or your success in life. 
when you believe that Jesus is the one who's brought you into the presence of the Father, that he's done it for you, that you're united to him by faith, that you're already a child of your heavenly Father, that you're accepted and loved, that you're in the family by grace, then you can go and you can love others in the same way. Jesus says, live out your identity as God's sons and daughters by loving those whom God loves. Let me be clear. None of this is easy. It hurts to turn the other cheek. It's painful to pray for those who persecute you. But when you know that the Father loves you, even when it feels like no one else does, you can take up your cross and you can follow Christ. Even your suffering becomes a means by which you can grow closer to Jesus. Let me end with this. Later in the Gospel of Matthew, in chapter 17, Jesus goes up another mountain with three of his disciples and his glory is revealed. His identity is the Son of God. And at this moment, the Father's voice comes from heaven and says, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Here's the, the message today. If you belong to the eternal Son, Jesus Christ, your Heavenly Father speaks the same words over you today. You are my son. You are my daughter, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Do you believe this? Let's believe it together. Let's pray. Our Father, we confess that we are more broken and sinful than uh, we have ever realized, but we are also more loved uh, than we can imagine in and through your son, Jesus. We thank you for your superabundant love revealed in him, and we pray that you would give us grace uh, to, to live in the light of this love, to love as you love and to give as you give. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.